Greetings and welcome. My name is James White. We're right in the middle of a study of the doctrine of the Trinity, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. That's not a term that some people hear very often, the title of biblical doctrine of the Trinity. But I truly believe that if we accept all that the Bible teaches, we will be forced by the nature of that text, by the nature of the inspired Word of God, to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. We've been looking at the three foundations of the Trinity, the biblical foundations, which would be biblical monotheism, the fact there's only one true God, then the existence of three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, those texts that would differentiate between them. And now we're looking at the third of those foundations, and that is the equality of those divine persons. And we're focusing primarily upon the evidence for the deity of Christ. And we mentioned that there is three kinds of evidence for the deity of Christ. We have those references that specifically use the word God of Jesus. And that's what we looked at the last time. We looked at John 20, 28 and other texts like that. The second is the identification of Jesus as Yahweh, which is what we're going to focus on in today's study. And then the third, we're not really going to be able to cover much of, but that is the, the ascription of divine attributes and activities to Christ, his forgiving of sins, for example, the words that he said that could not possibly have been said by a mere creature. But as I mentioned in the earlier program, the identification of Jesus as Yahweh is frequently one of the strongest evidences that you can present to someone because it gets past the arguments about the name God or if it's being used of a God or a mighty God or the almighty God or things like that. And especially when dealing with followers of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society or Jehovah's Witnesses, it is very useful to be able to bypass the majority of their objections and go directly to this evidence. Because clearly, if Jesus is identified as Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, yod heh wow heh Yahweh, the name of God in the Old Testament, then all the arguments about whether it's God or a God go flying out the window. They're not relevant anymore if Jesus is identified as Jehovah. So how would I go about uh, speaking, for example, to one of Jehovah's Witnesses or anyone else who questions the deity of Christ and yet shows respect for the text of the Scriptures. Well, there are two texts that I would go to. I would start back in the Psalms, Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. And I would invite a person to read it from whatever translation they have. And I would ask them first, who are we discussing in Psalm 102? And all they have to do is go back, for example, to verse 12. And it says, but you, O Lord, that is Jehovah, Yahweh, abide forever. Verse 21, that men may tell the name of Yahweh in Zion. I say, O oh my God, do not take away from me. Verse 24, this is talking about the one true God, Yahweh. And it is in that context we read the following words in verses 25 through 27. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Now, it's very important in discussing this issue to make sure we present this information in a biblical fashion. We don't just want to quote a verse and go over to another verse and go, see? What we want to do is we want to make sure we accurately understand the text we're using. And here in Psalm 102, I ask the question of people, now could these words be used of anyone but Jehovah? Is it not true that what is being described here is the immutability, the unchangeableness 
of God? And isn't he being contrasted, his eternal nature being contrasted with the changing nature of creation? That creation ages and it gets old, but God does not. He does not experience this progression of time where he becomes weaker, but that's what happens with creation. Could this be said of anyone else? Could this be said of, a, of an archangel or any creation at all? No, these are words that are only applicable to the one true God, Yahweh. So I asked them, so we have here in Psalm 102, words that are specifically about a unique attribute of Jehovah God. Yes, we do. Okay, then could we turn over to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Hebrews chapter 1, you may recall in the last study, we looked at verses 6 through 8. And in verse 8, we saw, saw that the verse begins, but of the Son, he says, and then we have the description of Jesus as God in verse 8. That continues verse 9, and then verse 10 just says, and, so this is still being referred to the Son, this is still talking about the Son, and, and here's what Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 say. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up like a garment, they also will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. That's Psalm 102, 25 through 27, which we already agreed is only about Yahweh. It's only about Jehovah God. And here it's being applied by the writer in the New Testament, knowing what the Old Testament context was, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this shows us how full Hebrews chapter 1 as a chapter is of testimonies to the deity of Christ. We see in Hebrews chapter 1, these words at the beginning, when in describing Jesus, it talks about his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, that's a description of God. And then we saw the description of him being worshipped in verse 6. He's called God by the Father in verse 8. And then in verses 10 through 12, you take a text that can only be applied to Jehovah God and is applied to him in Psalm 102 and apply it directly to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1. How could anyone come up with any other conclusion than that the writer to the Hebrews is purposefully identifying Jesus as Yahweh? Now, I think it's important on a practical level to start with the Old Testament text and to make sure we nail down the use of Psalm 102 before we go to Hebrews chapter 1. I think this helps a person to see the weight of the biblical text and see that the writer is purposefully using that Old Testament text and applying it to Jesus. Then we can open up the rest of Hebrews chapter 1 and allow all of this to have its impact. Now, if I could say something very practical at this point to all my Christian friends in the audience, sometimes when we are having dialogues with people from other faiths, uh, from, from faiths that claim to be Christian but are not, or, or even completely different world religions, sometimes in the heat of battle, uh, we make some mistakes. We allow some of the flesh to get in the way, shall we say? 
And when we make a strong point, when we present something to someone that clearly they've never seen before, we can sometimes do more damage than good by the way that we follow up with that presentation. What I mean is this. Many people from, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the followers, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society have never seen this. And so if you're to present it to them, be careful how you finish up the presentation. What do I mean? Well, when you present something to someone that they've never seen before, you can present it in such a way as, well, don't you have an answer? What are you going to do now? And you see, the problem is, They'll come up with an answer. Now, it may be the worst answer could ever be given, but they'll come up with an answer, and because you've forced that upon them, they will go to their graves defending that answer. They'll never actually think about the issue. They won't examine the issue. You've forced them into a corner, and you've forced them to give an answer that really doesn't make any sense. May I suggest that when you're presenting information like this, whether it's the preceding information on the deity of Christ, Granville Sharp's rule in Titus 2.13, whatever it might be, when you present something to someone and it's clear that they do not have the background to have already studied this, do it some, something like this. Now, I wouldn't expect you to have an answer for this right now, but I would like you to, to look further into this and see if this is not true. And in fact... Could I show you another text that illustrates the same point? You see, now what you've done is you've given them the freedom to think about these things. You haven't demanded an answer. You haven't tried to uh, get yourself some points in theological battle. You haven't made yourself feel good. And some people might say you've given them an out. No, you haven't given them an out. You've given them the truth, and you're inviting them to think about the truth more fully. And what you've also done is you've asked, can I show you another text? I honestly, in all the times that I have witnessed to, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses or other people and discussed this issue, I've never once had an incident where someone has said, no, you can't show me any more biblical texts. No, I'm not going to look at any more. That simply has never happened to me. And so my suggestion would be, let's be wise. Let's be careful. Let's not look at this as some kind of of improper warfare. There is a sense in which it is warfare. There is a defense of the truth. The Bible uses that terminology. But we need to be careful that we do not uh, pander to our flesh and that we do not try to pat ourselves on the back or, or win some theological argument in a surface level fashion. Our purpose is first of all to glorify God in his truth and to communicate that truth to others so that they can come to understand it. And that's up to us whether we force them into the corner or whether the, we speak to them in such a way as to allow them to examine these things and come to better conclusions. Now, when I say to them, can I show you another text? The text that I want to show them is found in John chapter 12. Now, in this incident, in this particular incident, I don't want to start with the Old Testament and come into the New I want to reverse this. And in fact, I would suggest if you present both of these texts, you start with the Psalm 102, Hebrews 1 passage, and then you go to the John chapter 12, verses 39 through 40, Isaiah 6 passage. I, I've just found that it communicates a little bit better to people. And what we find in John chapter 12, and I, I do try to set up the context so that they can see where we are in the gospel of John and why it's relevant to them. I try to explain that, that the first 12 chapters present the public ministry of Jesus, and then at the end of John chapter 12, we transition into the private ministry of Jesus, where he is specifically ministering to the apostles. And so this is the end of Jesus' public ministry.
And right at the end of Jesus' ministry, some Greeks come seeking after Jesus. They go to Philip. Philip is a Greek name. And so they wanted to see Jesus. And Philip comes to Jesus and says, there are some Greeks seeking after you. Now, it might surprise some people, Jesus doesn't meet with them. In fact, it specifically says he hid himself from them. He hid the, himself from the Gentiles because the time had not yet come for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. That comes after the crucifixion of Jesus, after the resurrection. Then the gospel is sent out to the Gentiles. But the fact that the Gentiles are now coming and wanting to meet Jesus prompts this interesting discussion on the part of the Lord. And some of the words he says are very difficult. But backing up to John chapter 12, verse 37. Actually, go back to verse 36. You'll notice halfway through the verse it says, These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. And then we have commentary from the Apostle John. And here's what he says. Beginning at verse 37 of chapter 12, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for this reason? They could not believe for Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart. So they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Then see verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Let me repeat that. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Now, it would be very easy to read right past that and not see what John's intention is here. These things Isaiah said, what things? Well, the immediately preceding verse comes from Isaiah chapter 6. And if you know your Bible well, you know that Isaiah chapter 6 is the text where Isaiah receives his commission as a prophet. It is his temple vision, where in the year that King Isaiah died, Isaiah saw Jehovah sitting on his throne, lofty and lifted up. And it specifically says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And it is in this context that, that Isaiah is called to the ministry. When Isaiah sees the holy God upon the throne, he says, woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And remember the angel takes the, the burning coal from the altar and touches his lips and provides forgiveness to him. A very, very important text in the book of Isaiah. But then the very words that are quoted by John in John chapter 12, verse 40 are found in the commissioning of Isaiah. Isaiah is commissioned to go and to preach to the people. But unfortunately, as a part of his commission, God actually tells Isaiah that he is going to harden the people's hearts. Now, that wasn't a very easy message, I imagine, for Isaiah to hear. I'm going to send you these people, and I'm going to harden their hearts, and they're not going to listen to you. And maybe, hence, when, when uh, Isaiah asked the question, how long, it was more like, how long? 
because here he is given a very difficult assignment. He is given the assignment of being a prophet to a people under judgment, to an idolatrous people. And it is those words then from Isaiah chapter 6 that are quoted by John in John chapter 12, verse 40. And so then when we hear these words, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him, there's one more piece of information you might want to know. The Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language. About 200 to 250 years before the coming of Christ, that Old Testament was translated into the Greek language. And that version of the Greek Old Testament is called the Septuagint, allegedly translated by 70 or 72 translators. We know that, in fact, there was not a single Septuagint, but that it was translated over time, different portions of the Old Testament. In the Greek Septuagint, there is a slight difference in reading at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, in the Hebrew Masoretic text, it says that the train of his robe was filling the temple. But in the Greek Septuagint, it speaks of Isaiah seeing his glory in the exact same terminology that John uses in John 12, 41. And remember, John is writing to Greek-speaking people, and when he quotes from the Old Testament, guess which version he quotes from? That's right, he quotes from the Greek Septuagint. So in the Greek Septuagint, in Isaiah 6, it is specifically said that Isaiah saw his glory. Now we understand what John is talking about when he says these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. If we were to ask Isaiah, Isaiah, whose glory did you see? Isaiah's response would have been, I saw Jehovah's glory. If we ask John, whose glory did Isaiah see? John's response is, he saw the glory of Christ. He saw the glory of the pre-incarnate Son, the one who sat upon the throne surrounded by the seraphim. The object of their worship and their adoration was who? It was the Son. That is the teaching of John chapter 12, verse 41. Now, if these were the only two texts in all the New Testament, someone might say, well, maybe we're missing something. We need more background. But these are not the only texts in the New Testament that identify Jesus as Yahweh. Even the command, when the, the Apostle Peter in 3.15 tells us to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us, he starts off by saying, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Even that phraseology of setting apart the Lord in our hearts comes from the Old Testament. The New Testament writers were completely comfortable taking from the Old Testament, not just general statements like, well, uh, God is a king and Jesus is a king, and since there's lots of kings, then we don't have any problem calling Jesus a king. That's not the kind of evidence that I'm talking about. They had no problem taking specific texts about Jehovah God from the Old Testament and applying them to Jesus using that term kurios, Lord of Jesus. In fact, it's interesting that the, the common title for Jesus by his followers, by Paul, by Peter, is that term Lord, kurios in Greek. 
when the Greek Septuagint translated the Hebrew Old Testament, the Jews had come to fear pronouncing the name of Yahweh. To this day, they will not do so. What had they substituted? They had substituted the word Adonai, my Lord. And so in the Greek Septuagint, when the name of Yahweh appears in the Greek Septuagint, it is Kurios, Lord. And so take the time sometime, especially if you're a student of Scripture, to go through the uses of the term Lord in the New Testament and see how many of them were actually derived from the Old Testament and are being applied to Jesus in such a way that would demonstrate that he truly is Jehovah God. The number of them is many. And so what have we seen in this study? We have seen that we need to understand what the biblical doctrine of the Trinity is. We need to be able to explain that we are not saying that there is one being that is three beings, one person that is three persons. We are saying there is one being and that eternal being, that unlimited timeless being, the what of God is shared by three who's, the Father, Son, and Spirit, three divine co-equal and co-eternal persons. We must make that differentiation. And my suggestion to you is immediately then go into the text of the Bible to demonstrate why you believe these things. And how do you do so? By the demonstration of the three foundations, the three biblical foundations of the Trinity, where we are taught that there is only one true and eternal God. There is only one self-existent God. Emphasize the fact, especially with certain religious groups, that we are absolute monotheists, that we do not believe in a plurality of gods. We do not believe in polytheism. We believe in one true God. That must be the first thing we emphasize. And then we go from there to the demonstration that there are three divine persons presented in Scripture, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. No other divine persons are ever mentioned. There is no other evidence of anything that would give us a, a fourth or a fifth. There are three divine persons mentioned in the Scripture, and they are mentioned in such a way as to clearly distinguish them. And we have seen from Scripture that the Son eternally existed as a divine person before the Incarnation, that He did not consider the equality He had with the Father something to be grasped. He emptied himself. These are actions of divine person, a divine person so clearly in the consciousness of Jesus that when he prays the Father in John 17, he says, glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I had in your presence before the world was. Three divine persons distinguished from one another. The Father and the Son, they send the Spirit. The Spirit glorifies the Son. We see these clear differentiations between these persons. And yet, we also have very clearly presented to us the equality of those persons. And that we have seen in the evidence where Jesus is described specifically as God. Here we've just looked at the evidence that demonstrates that Jesus is identified as Jehovah. We could look at evidence that demonstrates that Jesus has given the attributes and activities of God. Then we could look at the Holy Spirit. We could see that the Holy Spirit is a person, not just a thing. He acts, He speaks, He commands with divine authority. By going to the text of Scripture, if someone's going to deny the doctrine of the Trinity, we'll be able to identify what foundation in the Bible they're denying and take them back to the Holy Word of God itself as the foundation for our belief in God. When we honor God, 
by looking at what his word, what he has revealed about himself in his word. We are enriched. Our worship is enriched. And he is honored as we honor his word. Thank you for being with me in this study. God bless.